0: back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it it sports sports, with M3. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready, ready? Are you ready for... Place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm going to do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, uh, here's, here's your host, your host M3, M3, Mike, M3. Mike M3. Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the School Broadcast. Good afternoon everyone, hope everything's going well for you here on this Tuesday, the 6th day of September, yeah I know, A to? that we're doing this due to uh, Labor Day taking place yesterday. I hope all of you had a very pleasant, relaxing, safe, fun uh, Labor Day weekend Been kind of a long Labor Day weekend for yours truly quite frankly considering as I've told most of you on here before I work at the amazon warehouse up in Carteret, new jersey and as i was leaving on thursday night they informed us that they're going to be shutting down temporarily rumor has it that they may have failed safety inspection or who knows what went down there truly but have had uh, an extra long weekend, a couple of paid days off, coming in ready, relaxed, and uh, sit here for about an hour and talk about sports like I like to do each and every single week. And a lot I'll mix in along the way today, give you some thoughts on the Donovan-Mitchell trade, which uh, went down um, middle of uh, last week, uh, l- what's likely the end of... Uh, Serena Williams' uh, long lustrous uh, uh, career, as well as some uh, some things going on in the NFL. Because hey, this coming Thursday, it's time, people. It's uh, football time. Finally, gonna get the twenty twenty two season started uh, with uh, the Bills and the Rams on uh, Thursday Night Football, and in the coming days, I will have my uh, predictions for the 2022 season i know we'll probably make one friend of mine pretty happy when he sees them but uh get to a lot of that uh, later of course i want to start with what's been the angst of my existence for the last two months and what really should not be but that's the new york yankees who you know right now I should have my feet up, relaxed, all comfortable, watching the Yankees cruise to the American League East Championship with the only question in mind being, oh, are they going to be in first place overall in the American League, have home field advantage throughout the postseason? With The only thing to watch from this team is, Aaron Judge going to break Roger Maris's single-season franchise and American League record for home runs. But no. For the last two months, as I've talked about in earnest on here, they've decided to take one big giant crap on all of that. Because for the last two months, hey, Aaron Judge has done his job. Aaron Judge has showed up each and every single night, and brought forth what you would expect out of a New York Yankee. Aaron Judge, since the All Star break, is batting 340. While the rest of this pedestrian offense, and God, it's pedestrian, I-, I was surprised that it was this high, is batting 207. Aaron Judge has 21 home runs since the All Star break. The rest of the team combined has 32. And quite frankly, this mess, this slide that this team has been on for the the better part of the last two months, going 20 and 31 since uh, their amazing 61 and 23 start. The blame goes on everybody here from the top of the organization all the way down. I mean, of course, you you have to blame the players n- number one because you know the, they control have the ultimate control of win loss total. And Boone or the the nerds in the analytic department can set whatever lineup they want. At the end of the day, it's a matter of these guys going out there and hitting. And the fact that you've got nothing out of Josh Donaldson since May. Giancarlo Stanton is as hot. A, and called the streaky player as you're going to find in this sport dj lemay since this toe thing cropped up has no power whatsoever can't even get a single aaron hex has been a nothing all year glaber torres has disappeared since the all-star break there's just someone out there wearing his jersey right now and Whether it's he's still completely screwed up from being a shortstop the last two years or he's just not as good as we once thought he was going to be. Maybe he's going through that same slide that derailed Gary Sanchez's Yankee tenure and just saw him hit a bomb against the Yankees uh, yesterday. All the way around, you look at this lineup, I mean, Right now, the guy who's been the most consistent after-judge in this lineup all year has been Jose Trevino. And that's not supposed to be the case. Trevino, what you get out of him is supposed to be a luxury, not a necessity. It's He's supposed to just be down there in the 7, 8, or 9 spot in the lineup, hit a cute little... 240 with his 10 home runs and bring great defense. Not where you're relying on him to be the second best player in this lineup, especially now at a time where they've lost Benintendi for who knows if it's the rest of the season due to this hammock bone injury. And they haven't had Matt Carpenter for about a month now, and we'll see if he's able to come back before – the end of the regular season. I mean, this lineup is a mess, especially and what hurts the most is the starting pitching's been fine. The starting pitching, as annoyed as I was about the Montgomery trade, as much as it stinks that they've been without Luis Severino since July, starting pitching has not really been the problem. You got a a workman's effort out of uh yesterday after What was kind of an iffy last couple of months from him. Montas looks like he's starting to turn things around and starting to become really adjusted to pitching here in uh, New York. As much as I don't like him as a person, herman has been really good since coming off uh, the IL. Cole... He's had his, his clunkers, but for the most part has been what you would expect him to be. He hasn't been you know, at that DeGrom Scherzer level this year, but he's had his four or five clunkers, but for the most part has pitched like the ace you need him to be. And then you, you uh, get what you have getting out of uh, Nestor Cortez, who's going to come off the I.L. on Thursday – Starting pitching's been fine, and the, even pieces in the bullpen are starting to shape in the form. Like Luisa looking like the guy he was last year, and the work that you've gotten out of uh, uh, pieces like Ron Marinaccio and even uh, um, uh, Lou Trevino since uh, he got over here. The problem is this offense is not doing a damn thing unless it's Aaron Judge hitting a home run. I mean, look at over the weekend. They lose two out of three to the Rays, their closest competition in the American League East. And Judge scored all three runs that they scored in this series with his two home runs, and uh, then the sack fly he scored on in the eighth inning. I mean, it's pitiful watching uh, this offense. And my big problems are th- here, you know, A, the the fact that outside of yesterday, they've scored barely over two runs a game for the last uh, 24 games. And B, there's no accountability in this lineup. There's none of this, oh, if you hit, you'll play. If you don't hit, you're going to sit down. Aaron Hicks continues to get preferential treatment in this lineup just based on Cashman and his goons wanting to justify that stupid contract they gave him once upon a time. Or Isaiah Falefa has been a nice little singles hitter this year, but let's face it, despite what you look at on the stat sheet, his defense has been atrocious. He has not gotten enough errors thrown his way, mostly because some of these hometown uh, scorekeepers when they've been on the road have wanted to give uh, a little uh, homerism and call certain things that he should have made the play on a hit when it really was an error. Plus, we've seen how bad his throwing arm is uh, from uh, shortstop. So I don't want to hear anybody with his, oh, his range or that the fact that his war in... Uh, Defense in baseball is ninth amongst shortstops. Please, that's a bunch of nonsense. Watch him play and you'll see. He has not been a great shortstop this year. And that's why I don't understand how you bring up Peraza on Friday. And Peraza's playing like every other day. But you're continuing to play IKF each day. IKF was never meant to be a roadblock for either Peraza or Volpe, whichever one of these kids was ready to come up first. He was meant to be a placeholder. And you do not bring up a young prospect, a prospect that, remember, Cashman refused to trade this guy at the deadline to get the likes of Luis Castillo or any other big-time pitcher that could have been available, was willing to settle for the Montas deal because he didn't have to give up, uh, anybody in the top 10 of their prospects in this organization. You do not bring up this kind of prospect unless you're going to play him every day. I mean, you've been playing Cabrera each and every single day, and he's nowhere near the level of a a prospect that uh, Peraza is supposedly supposed to be. And so between those two guys... And then Donaldson yesterday not running out of the box on a fly ball to left field, getting thrown out by a mile at second base. Lucky the judge was running hard, or they wouldn't have scored that run in the first inning. There's no accountability here. But, you know, Boone, for as much tough talk as he tries to show in the postgame press conferences or confidence he's tried to show in players, he's a front man. I've told you guys this before. You know Anybody who's wanted to put this at the, the feet of Aaron Boone, you're looking at the wrong person. You should be looking at Brian Cashman because he constructed this roster poorly. He made trades that were nonsensical. I mean, it's one thing you want to get rid of Gary Sanchez, but clearly Josh Donaldson is looking like he's on the back five of his career rather than the front nine of Augusta. And adding that $50 million, or like I've said for years, why you would give Aaron Hicks a seven-year contract extension when that year prior was the only year he had stayed healthy or consistently performed is beyond me. But it goes back years. They've built this team where if they're not hitting home runs, they're not scoring runs. They've cared more about this all-or-nothing approach and this nonsense with the launch angle than they have about putting together consistent at-bats. Yeah, they take pitches, sometimes too much for my liking. But, you know, when the home runs go dry, you've got to find another way to score runs. You've got to find another way to put together some form of offensive consistency. And so far... You're not seeing that in the last two months from this Yankee team. That's why I am so looking forward to next year, the defensive shift in all likelihood being outlawed in this sport. Because that is what's led. You know, a lot of people saying, oh, baseball's boring or that they can't watch it anymore because it's a a three true outcomes kind of sport. Home run, strikeout, or walk. Because they teach these guys, oh, if you can't beat the shift, just hit it over them. And that's what the Yankees have become. Because the they get shifted just like everyone else. But rather than try to hit the ball the other way or maybe lay down a bunt every once in a while, they're always just trying to hit it a mile um, over the seats. And that the only guy that's done that on a consistent basis this year is Aaron Judge. So, it's been frustrating. It's been aggravating. Now, I know there's a lot of fan bases out there that have said, Oh, who cares? You're just whiny. You're complaining. Your team. You've gotten to see your team win at least five championships in your lifetime. And while all of that is 100% true, still, this is not what you would expect out of this Yankee team, especially some of these series that they're losing to teams, you know, splitting four games against the Oakland A's losing two out of three to the Anaheim angels, especially when they're not even pitching Shohei Otani and Walt Trout is doing absolutely nothing. So it's frustrating. It's been annoying and you you hope that these next three days are the get right series because to be blunt and excuse my language here the minnesota twins since 2002 have been the new york yankees bitch okay it doesn't matter who is in uniform Whether it was the Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau, Johan Santana group, a group that had a lot of talented players. Remember that team, not just those three guys, they had Joe Nathan as their closer, you had Torrey Hunter there, uh, Michael Kadir, Jason Kubel. That was a, a, a representable baseball team that won a lot, was in the postseason a lot but would always run into the Yankees and didn't matter how hot they were or how cold the Yankees were, they met up in the regular season, whether it be old Yankee Stadium, new Yankee Stadium, uh, the Metrodome, Target Field. The Yankees would find a way each and every single time to either kick their ass or give them as heartbreaking and demoralizing a loss as you could imagine a baseball team having to suffer. So this, I'm sure I've said this two or three times over the last month, this has to be the get-right time. This has to be go time. Because Toronto and Tampa are breathing right down your necks. I don't believe that the Yankees are going to get much help over the next couple days with Tampa playing the Boston Red Sox. And Toronto looks ready to just... Pulverize the Baltimore Orioles right into the ground as they continue their four-game set the uh, next couple days. And both these teams are just five games behind the Yankees, whereas a month and a half ago, they were 15 to 16 games back. So it's time to go. It's time to wake up the hell up and start being the New York Yankees and not just sitting there on your hands and relying on Aaron Judge to carry you and save the day. All right, a lot to get to for the next about 45 minutes or so here. Give you some thoughts on the uh, wildcard standings in major league baseball, uh, what the mets are dealing with right now, an expansion to the college football playoffs, uh some contract news in in the NFL as well as uh pay some respect to one of the goats in sports, likely calling it a career. So plenty to get to over the next what we say about 40 45 minutes or so. Here so like I tell you each and every single week at this time, please sit back, relax, help put your feet up. If you feel like it and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. As annoyed as. And- Disappointed as I have been with the way the Yankees have played the last two matches, a rather long stretch of baseball. Recently, it has not been all kumbaya for the Mets either because their sizable lead in the National League East has come crawling back to them based on things happening within and what's going on around them because let's face it the Atlanta Braves just won't stop coming are on a a streak since you know beginning of June when Acuna came back they've essentially lapped the Mets when it comes to a run differential and run scored and have been an unstoppable force both at home and on the road They did have that little period where they got slowed down by the Mets a bit with that five-game set about a month ago where they lost four out of five. But since then, I've been on fire, have crawled back within one game of the Mets in the loss column. That's why this weekend really hurt for the Mets when you take into account two things. A, how the hell are you losing to the Washington Nationals? I don't want to hear the excuses about, oh, it was the bullpens. Fault that you know, Ademino faltered late on Saturday. You scored one run on back-to-back days to Patrick Corbin, who's been awful since signing that contract with the Nationals, and then Eric Fetty, who's quite frankly lucky to be in the big leagues. And the Mets have been a team that have been. Pretty good hitting with runners in scoring position all year long. And you only drive in one run on back-to-back nights against the Nationals. That was pathetic. That was pitiful to watch. Now, maybe some of it on Saturday night was being demoralized by the little bit of an injury scare that you had. And I shouldn't call it an injury scare because there's no actual injury. It was just precaution. But Max Scherzer leaving the game... uh, in the fifth inning due to left side fatigue. Not what you want if you're a uh, Mets fan or a Mets player. Not something that you really want to s- sit there and see, especially a month before uh, the uh, postseason begins. A- at a time where, let's face it, if as long as the Mets hold on to their division lead, they are going to be the number two seed in the National League postseason. And that's important because you get that first round bye. You don't have to deal with the nonsense of the uh two out of three wild card rounds. Well even with the slide that the Yankees have been on and how annoyed I've been at their play. With 27 games left to go, they still have a 12 game lead over the third-place team in the American League and will likely avoid playing in that first week of the postseason. But you know what, Scherzer going down now. And you concern yourself with this because, remember, early in the year, he had the oblique problem. And we know that even though it's been two months since he came back, at the age he's at and how violent his delivery is. That's one surprise he's been such a workhorse over his career. He's a he's a physical marvel. He is 38 years old. He ha- does have a lot of mileage on that body. And you don't want him to get hurt right now. That's why you know normally he's a guy that toughs it out. He's a guy that uh wants to be the toughest guy in the room, toughest guy on the team. But he took the smart approach with uh, discretion is the better part of valor uh approach on Saturday, pulling himself from uh, that game. And now hopefully it's not something that re pops up in his next start. His next start um probably gonna take place uh against uh these uh pittsburgh pirates over the next couple days they do have that doubleheader coming up tomorrow not sure if he's gonna be fitting in there or um uh, be in the series after that but this has to be like i talked about with the yankees uh in uh, the series against the twins this series against the pirates has to be a get right series you have to start rebuilding up ground because it You played the Atlanta Braves in the last week of the season. You don't want that series to matter. You don't want that series to have any importance because then all of the demons of the Mets pass. And I know it's a different team, different manager. There's a different feel to this clubhouse. But that mindset is still something that lingers over this fan base. And you don't want something like that to continue to be A thing, should we say. Now, we look at, with about a month to go here, we look at these playoff standings. And in the National League, you're going to have a dogfight to the end between the Mets and the Braves, it looks like. In the the, the, uh, Central, the Cardinals have pulled away from the Milwaukee Brewers, I don't know what whether it's the Brewers being demoralized based on the Josh Hader trade or if it's just some of the injuries they've had to their starting pitching rotation this year or just the fact that the Cardinals have been awesome since acquiring Jordan Montgomery and are getting an extra little boost off of this last hurrah by Albert Pujols. But they've essentially put the the Milwaukee Brewers in the rearview mirror when it comes to the Central, and we know what the story is out west with the Dodgers, essentially preparing for the postseason as we speak. So right now it's going to come down to three teams for two spots because the runner up in the the uh, National League East is a Sewan. They've got a ten and a half game. The Braves have a 10 and a half game lead over the Phillies. So you, you're going to have Phillies, Padres, and Brewers battling it out for these last two spots. Phillies who just got Bryce Harper back in there the last couple of weeks. The Brewers who I don't know what to think out of them. And then there's the Padres who are on a three-game losing streak. And the Padres could be the dangerous team here. But the, the problem I've always had with the Padres, actually two problems here. One, Josh Hader needs to be Josh Hader. I don't know what the hell happened to this guy. The first three months of the year, he was the best closer in the sport. He looked like Josh Hader. The last two months, he's been a disaster. So much so that a week into being traded to the Padres, he's been removed from the closer role. They, If they're going to go anywhere... You need to be able to shut these games down because there's nothing more demoralizing in the postseason than battling your ass off for eight innings and then handing the ball off to a closer who can't get the job done, who doesn't finish the job in the ninth inning. And I saw this segment on the MLB Network the other day hosted by Brian Kenny, where he talked about how Oh, we've seen where these elite closers in this era where it's going out there all or nothing for an inning. And they just seemingly fall apart. Brought up Chapman, Kimbrell, Jansen, who were the standard bearers for closers for the last eight or nine years, had that incredible peak. And then all of a sudden fell off the face of the earth where the where Chapman's not even an average usable reliever anymore, and Jansen and and Kimbrell are just kind of okay closers at this point. Well, we haven't seen a guy like this with Hater. where he, he just falls apart mid-season. It, it hasn't even just been, oh, it's a precipitous drop where you saw signs of this coming in previous years. No, it's just in the middle of this year, whether he lost life on his fastball, he lost confidence in the strike zone, something along the way has fallen apart for Josh Hader. And they need to get that right. They need to have that consistency at the back end of their bullpen with him closing out. Because the rest of their roster, on paper, it's pretty good. On, on paper, you look around, you've got a star-filled lineup, even without um, Fernando Tatis. You've got a lineup being carried, uh, or that can be carried, by Juan Soto and Manny Machado. A, a starting rotation that can probably match up with almost anybody in uh, the postseason. But they need to be able to close these games. Because even as a wild card, they could be dangerous this postseason. Now you look at it in the American League. The Astros, thanks to the Yankees' slide, have been able to take a sizable lead for the best record in uh, the American League as far as home field advantage would be concerned for the postseason. But right now it looks like we do have our playoffs almost completely set. I mean, you look in the central there's, there's probably going to be a heated race to the end between the top three teams there. Although I don't have confidence in Tony La Russa to be able to completely guide that ship. I mean, they're the most confounding team in this sport. They're a game over 500 but have a run differential of minus 26. So you look at that division, it's likely going to be a one team comes out of their uh division because the American League East teams have blown right by the Twins. You know, that these next couple days are an important series for the minnesota twins if they were to lose three out of four or get swept by the yankees that could be it for them that could be the death nail for them because they are six and a half games back at toronto for the final wild card spot in the american league and toronto is playing the orioles the next couple of days the orioles who have been that cute fun story this year been the probably the one of the biggest surprises in the American League. But have now lost three in a row, got swept in a doubleheader by the Blue Jays yesterday, where um, Bichette was drilling home runs all over the place. So you're looking at likely a likelihood, unless one of the, the Rays or Blue Jays catch up to the Yankees, where your three American League wildcard teams are the Rays, the Mariners, and the Blue Jays and the team that is probably taking the most solace that the most enjoyment over what they're doing right now is the Seattle Mariners because it's been a long time since they made the postseason. The last time they made the playoffs was that record setting 2001 season they had in which they Set a big league record of 116 wins in the regular season, but got derailed in the postseason when they ran into the Yankees in the American League Championship Series, and so much so that the Yankee fans were chanting "Oakland's better" at them as they were falling short in that series. And you think about how much has changed since then. I mean, were three U.S. presidents removed from that. I was in the 7th grade the last time they made the postseason. And just last week, I turned 34. I, so much has has changed since the Mariners' last uh, postseason bid. So, you no know, good for them, good for their fan base in uh, finally getting there. I thought about a week ago, maybe there was a chance in the National League that maybe the Diamondbacks could make some noise, especially when you see... The great seasons that their two aces, Merrill Kelly and Zach Gallen, are having. But it's going to be just way too much. They're not going to make up eight games in this final less than 30 games to go. Neither the Phillies, Padres, or Brewers are going to lose enough to get them in. But I figured I, I would mention them because they've been hot since the middle of August have been a really good story. And, you know, they have what every team is looking for. Young, controllable aces and pitchers that could potentially dominate in the postseason. And that's what you need. You need in the playoffs three things. I mentioned a closer that can close games out. But you need starting pitchers that you can trust that can match up against Any other teams, one, two, and three. And finally, you need the timely hits. You're not going to have a whole bunch of guys hitting a 400 in the postseason. I mean, you look back at the late 90s Yankees, the batting averages of the likes of Tino Martinez, Scott Brocious, and others were nothing to write home about in those playoffs. But we remember them and love them because they came up with the timely hits at the right time. They, they may have hit, you know, 215, 230, something like that in uh, a given postseason. But when the time was right, they came up with that clutch hit that put them over the top. So that's what you need going down the stretch here, going into this postseason. Healthy and, and good starting pitching, timely hitting, and a closer that you can give the ball to that will slam the door and not give you that demoralizing loss when it really counts. All right, gonna take another break here. Want to come back? Turn my attention to football, where some big changes are coming in college football, and some people have some decision times coming up in uh, the NFL. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1 800 TV Radio or log on to gocsb.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools, redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained, get connected. One eight hundred TV radio. You now, in, in certain circumstances, I am a believer in the theory of less is more. You now, sometimes, you know, we always talk about in. Not just sports, but life in general. Oh, we want more of something. We want more. We want, you know, the best possible scenario. We want the best possible situation. Well, sometimes in those cases, more is not always the best thing. Sometimes more will dilute it. Sometimes having more of something dilutes the thing that we like, the thing that we uh, love. And that's the the feeling I almost get in uh, this scenario when it comes to college football. The announcement that they made over the weekend, the board of managers um, got together for the college football playoff and approved uh, a system that will increase the current playoff format from four teams up to 12 teams as late as 2026 and as early as 2024. Now, I can remember a time not so long ago where we had that nonsensical system called the BCS and the computers decided which two teams would be playing for the national championship that year based off strength of schedule, uh, home and away wins, conference um, strength, you know, yada, 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 a whole bunch of things that at times didn't make a lot of sense and it left a lot of people up in arms, annoyed that you didn't have more teams with a chance. And while I liked and thought it was a good idea going to four teams, I knew that eventually there was going to come a day where they increased it uh, from four, not just based on competitive situations, because at times you do see those fifth, sixth, and even seventh teams that have a legitimate argument, but because why everything in life is decided. The almighty dollar you know, money talks, as we know. And they can, these college uh, football uh, playoff uh, managers, they can see that, oh, having more college football playoff games would probably be better financially for them with TV partners and with fan attendance at these games than it would continuing with some of these nonsensical irrelevant bowl games that they put on each and every December that over the last couple years I've grown to watch less and less of unless there's an intriguing matchup. But to jump from 4 to 12, a bit aggressive. I would have been okay if you went from 4 to 6 and had playing games in the first round, had... The one and two seeds get a first-round bye, and then go from there. Hell, even would have been good with eight, but 12 is too big a jump. Even you look at all the professional sports or all the other professional sports because I guess we can now put college football in the professional sports realm with this NIL deal that the players are making money off of it was slow incremental increases in their postseason. You know, the NFL didn't just wake up one day and decide they're going to have a 14-team playoff. Hell, Major League Baseball didn't just wake up one day and decide they were going to have a 12-team playoff. Remember, there was back a day once upon a time where you had two divisions in each league and uh, only four teams would make Major League Baseball's postseason. That was in my lifetime, in fact. That was a thing, pre-1995, pre-strike. And now we're sitting here almost 30 years later and we slowly crawling to the point where we had wild card teams. You had three divisions in each league. Now you have multiple wild card teams making it to the point where you have buys in the, the postseason. Why did we have to, as I said, money talks, but you had to jump all the way from 4 to 12 immediately. Especially when you look at what would be, if we're going based on preseason rankings, this would be the college football playoff right now. Your four first-round buys, the one through four seeds, would be Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and Clemson. The alpha dogs, as we sit here today in uh, the sport. The only teams that I, I think a lot of people think have a legitimate shot at winning a national championship. Then you would have your, 12, your five versus 12, Notre Dame versus Oklahoma State. Six versus eleven, Texas A&M versus Oregon, seven versus ten, Utah versus Baylor, and your eight versus nine, Michigan versus Oklahoma. And all likely those four teams would get waxed by the top four seeds in the second round. So, quite frankly, this all feels like a waste of time. This feels like, oh, let's throw the Pac-12 and those rare out of power five conference schools that have a great record, a bone here and think that they have a legitimate shot. When we know in the end, it's still likely going to be one of those top four teams that is going to be holding up the championship in the end that you're just now asking them to play one more game than they really need to uh, play And like I said, you're just trying to placate the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 tried to eliminate themselves from any consideration of this over the weekend. Oregon got smoked by Georgia on a neutral field, and that's going to hurt them when it comes to rankings as we go on. Probably going to push them out of the top 20 when the new uh, uh, coaches' polls and AP rankings come out this week. And then Utah lost a late lead on the road against Florida, had a chance to win in the end, but Cam rising through that interception at the goal line to give them a really costly loss. Those are the kind of things that you can't go on the road if you want to be taken seriously as a playoff contender, as a possible national championship contender, and lose a road game against an SEC school. And I know Florida is not yet back to the level that they once were. But like I said, that's an SEC program that you went on the road against and lost, blew a late lead against when you were the favorites going in. So all this to me just seems like a bit much, a little bit too soon. Now, I was very surprised about this and this just goes to show how you know sometimes no wrong i can be about a situation and how much it sucks that you know i'm not live and only do this once a week because this time about eight days ago I was telling you all how Jimmy Garoppolo is a soon-to-be former San Francisco 49er. And now we sit here eight days later, and he's reworked his deal and will be a San Francisco 49er for this season, becoming the highest-paid backup in the league, getting one year for $6.5 million with roster bonuses and incentives based on playing time that could get him up to $16 million this season. Tells me a couple of things here. A, nobody wanted to trade for this guy. No one uh, wanted to trade for him, even though he's a good quarterback, one we'll never call him elite, but you can win games with Jimmy Garoppolo as your quarterback. No one wanted to give up assets to get him from the San Francisco 49ers, whether it's they were worried about his shoulder or the Niners were asking for too much, hoping to get back a second-round draft pick like they did to originally get him from the Patriots years ago. There were no takers. The only teams that were interested in him were waiting For the 49ers to cut him loose and they had until this Saturday to make that decision when his $26 million due this coming year would have been guaranteed and they could not have that on their books. They also want him to remain there based on the fact that he's been a good soldier, hasn't whined and complained about this entire situation has realized that it was time for them to move on to Trey Lance. But is there, in case Trey Lance either gets hurt or, say, the first month of the season, face month and a half of the season, Trey Lance shows he's not ready. It's not his time yet. He's still very raw, and this is not a scenario that will just get better as the season goes on. You can turn to Jimmy if there's any hiccups in this and have a solid winnable quarterback take over that scenario for you for a team that you know on paper has a legitimate shot to make the postseason. You know, a lot of it is gonna depend on you no know, who else you look at, who else you consider is a real threat as a wild card in the NFC because, you know, they're still a bit behind the Rams. Even with the Rams losing some people in uh, this offseason, losing uh, the likes of Von Miller, not sure if they're bringing back Odell and even if they do, when he'd be ready, still are on the high of highs of coming off of winning a Super Bowl last year, have the best receiver in the sport in cup, and have a coach in Sean McVay that I'm more confident in than I am with Kyle Shanahan. And for my money, still have the best defensive player in this sport in Aaron Donald. So things break right for the 49ers. They can make the playoffs, but a lot of it is going to rely on is Trey Lance truly ready for this spot and if not would they turn to jimmy at some point this year rather than it being a retool year and a waste of a season and talk about a team looking to retool that's exactly the position that the denver broncos have put themselves in with the contract extension that they gave to Russell Wilson last week, because on paper people look at it and say, oh, five years for $245 million, $165 million guaranteed. Isn't that going to hurt your salary cap? Well, you forget that salary cap goes up every year. They've recovered well from the pandemic year where no one made money. And let's look at how the contract is structured. He gets a 50 million dollar signing bonus that will be divided over the course of a 5-year stretch between 2024 and 2028. Based on he've restructured what was left of his Seattle contract for the next 2 years and essentially added 5 years onto the back half of this and Right now, he only has a base salary this year of $2 million. Next year, his base salary is $8 million. The following year, it jumps up to 17. And then after that is when it really starts stacking up. But you look at the next couple of years, his salary next year will only account for about 2% of the projected salary cap. And in 2024, his salary will only take up about 6% of the projected salary cap. So you're getting a top-of-the-line, top-notch quarterback almost for the next couple years at a discount. And Russell Wilson, even though he, he only has one championship on his marker and that championship was mostly due to Seattle's Ground game and defense. He's been, if, if nothing else, the model of consistency and a top tier quarterback uh, in this league for the last eight, nine years. And you look at it over the course of Wilson's career, he has only missed three starts. And that kind of consistency is important for a Broncos franchise. That has gone through 11 quarterbacks since Peyton Manning retired after the 2015 season. Now, he even said it himself last week that he wants not only to be able to win championships, but for this contract to create enough space in the salary cap uh, to make magic and allow guys uh, to come in, making this a destination location, like what they did in the offseason in bringing in a uh, Randy Gregory. I mean, you look at the Peyton Manning era, that was a destination location with the, uh, the likes of DeMarcus Ware T.J. Ward, Aqib Tlaib, Emmanuel Sanders, all of those guys played a big role in winning Super Bowl 50. And that's what the Broncos are hoping that this contract extension does more of and the same when locking up Russell Wilson. This is a contract that they are not soon going to regret. And now you talk about contract extensions, We're less than one week away from the start of the season. Five days away from the first Sunday of the year. And Lamar Jackson set Sunday as the deadline for contract extension, which I've said plenty of times. I don't understand the way that he's handling this. I don't understand the way anyone with the Ravens is handling this. Why, A, they're not willing to give him as much guaranteed money as say the likes of Kyler Murray or Deshaun Watson are are getting from their respective teams. Because he's been more consistent than Kyler Murray. And unlike Deshaun Watson, you don't have to worry about character concerns off the field uh when it comes to Lamar Jackson. He's been everything you could ask for for a first round pick. Just hasn't gotten that championship yet. And he's still young in his career. I mean, he already ranks seventh all time in uh, rushing yards amongst quarterbacks. Has had 10 career uh, performances uh, of 100 or more rushing yards. um, Tied with Mike Vick for the most in NFL history. He's been a league MVP. He's won playoff game for this Franchise. It's been a seamless transition from the Joe Flacco era to Lamar, and you have uh, that electricity of a dual-threat quarterback here who last year, yes, he dealt with some health issues, but has shown uh, uh, incredible durability even with the type of player that he is. Why would you let this draw out to the point where you've got a place— franchise tags on him franchise tags that he'd make a a hell of a lot of money and you look at if he got tagged after this year the exclusive tag would be for over 45 million dollars while the non-exclusive tag would be 34 million dollars and for those of you who are not aware what that means the exclusive tag means that only the Ravens can negotiate with Lamar the Non-exclusive tag means other teams would be able to set up visits with him and can make him offers, even sign him to an offer sheet. But the Ravens would have the right to match that or uh, accept him leaving as a as a uh, franchise-tagged free agent but would get two first-round picks from uh, that team. And they determine the franchise tag based on the average annual salary of the five highest paid players in the sport at that given position. So if he got tagged after this year, then next year that would jump up 20% and the non-exclusive tag would be $40 million, and the non-exclusive tag would be over $54 million. So over the next two years, if he doesn't sign a deal, he could still make... Somewhere between seventy-five and a hundred million dollars over the course of a two-year deal. But why would you tempt fate if you're either side here? If you're the Ravens wanting to pay a guy fifty million dollars and not lock him up to a long-term security uh, of having multiple years on the contract with a high guarantee, potentially pissing him off to the point where when he does become a full free agent. He just decides to walk. And if you're Lamar, A, why would you take the field without a contract extension after last year's injury? B, why would you cut off negotiations right away at opening day? And and C, why do you have an agent? Why do you not have an agent? Why are you doing the negotiations yourself? Because as we've seen a lot of times in all of these sports, sometimes things are said in the, in the meeting rooms and the negotiating rooms that you're not going to want to hear. So to me, it would be in everyone in the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar's best interest if sooner rather than later they got a deal done. And Lamar, hire an agent just so you don't have to continuously hear about this nonsense or potentially hear things That you don't want to hear from their front office. All right, going to take one last break here, come back, finish things up with some thoughts on the Knicks, as well as the likely end of one of America's greatest athletes. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Hierarchy for yours truly when it comes to my sports interest and fandom on what I like to watch and what I root for the most. As far as overall sports and leagues are concerned, I would say the hierarchy starts at this it's baseball, basketball. And football up here. You know, probably baseball, football, and then basketball. Hockey's right about here. And then you got UFC just down here. And and then everyone else is down there. I don't watch much tennis or golf to really be considered an aficionado or expert on those. But when there's big things happening in those sports... I watch enough. I pay attention enough so that I know what the hell is going on. So that I know what you know. People are talking about what people are interested in. You know, Tiger Woods is in a close race uh, in the final nine on a Sunday. I'm gonna flip over and, and watch some golf. Normally, I don't watch golf, but I will check it out more times than not. I'm not waking up in the wee early hours of the morning to watch Wimbledon or the French Open. But when you have Nadal Federer or you have one of the Williams sisters going for a a Grand Slam. That captures my attention and I want to wake up and see it. So I was, of course, keeping an eye on... The U.S. Open uh, taking place over the last week and a half in New York, wanting to see what in all likelihood is the last ride of the career of the great Serena Williams. And great is an understatement. This is one of not just the greatest tennis players of all time. People, this is one of the most dominant athletes in American history, this is a not just a gem of a human being, but a gem of a specimen, a physical specimen in her uh, given profession. When you, you look at the career that she's had, uh, 85% winning percentage, over 70 career titles, including the uh, 23 Grand Slam titles and done it on every other match surface uh, possible along the way, even winning doubles championships with her uh, sister uh, Venus. It has been an absolutely remarkable ride that this woman has been on for the last what 25 years here. Utter domination. She should be very proud of her career, her parents, her family should all be very proud of her. And, you know, she said last month in uh, Vogue uh, magazine that while she wasn't announcing her retirement, that it was a time for her to evolve away from tennis toward other things that are more important to her, whether it be family, business ventures, No, you know, everyone, everyone knows when it's that time to Step away and she has finally decided to call it a career and move on to other things in her life. And I watched on Friday as she valiantly went down fighting like the true champion. She was you, you wouldn't expect anything different. You wouldn't expect her to fame some kind of injury or just flat out give up. You know, to till the very end, till match point against uh, Alia uh, Tamajevanic. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. She fought. She gave us everything she had, and I almost felt bad for the other girl because here she is. She's winning a match to move on in the U.S. Open, and all of the, the attention is on uh, Serena. But I think it's understandable in. Uh, of uh, this uh, circumstance because we're talking about arguably the greatest of all time, either men's or women's uh, tennis finally calling it a career. Now, what I don't like is some of the bitterness that I've seen and heard come out the last couple of days from someone in our own right who has an argument to be made for being the GOAT, for being the best of all time in Margaret Court. Margaret Court, of course, is the lone woman in women's tennis that has more career Grand Slam titles than Serena Williams. And she's at 24, while Serena is at 23. And Serena had long been trying to chase after her, had not won a, a title in the last couple of years. But Margaret Court in the last couple of days has come out with this grouchy, bitter, you know, almost old woman, get off my lawn kind of attitude when it comes to her uh, saying that, oh, Serena played seven more years than I did. I finished in my early 30s. People forget I took two years out had two babies when i was 25 and then returned to tennis i got married uh and and had one of my best years winning 24 out of 25 tournaments i i don't understand are you that jealous that somebody else has spotlight that somebody else has attention brought on to them i what this feels a lot like is as mariano rivera who most people with a working brain consider the greatest closer and greatest relief pitcher in the history of major league baseball as he was setting all those records franchise records for saves in the season um, setting the record for most saves in the american league history as well as baseball history Every time that was brought up, who would come out all grouchy, moaning, whining, complaining, trying to discredit, discount what Mo was doing? Fellow Hall of Famer, Goose Gossage. Because, oh, Rivera's in an era where saves are one-inning scenarios rather than in his era, they were doing it for two or three innings saying that oh he'd have a thousand saves if it was if he pitched in this era. I don't I don't understand the why these old time athletes always have to seem so bitter or grouchy. You don't see Billie Jean King having a this kind of uh grouchiness come out. And remember, she dealt with a lot of sexism thrown her way during her career. I Margaret Court, her career deserves to be respected. Yeah, she won 24 slams over a 13, 14-year run. But that doesn't mean we can't give credit and show respect to someone else who had a remarkable, phenomenal run. The fact that you're using what you did, you're using your situation to try and discredit and try to take away the... That all of this celebration, this culmination of this great career, thought that really made her look small, really thought that rather than enhanced her legacy, made her legacy look less than what it should be. Now, finally, one of the NBA's lone question marks of the offseason came to an end last week when the Cleveland Cavaliers acquired uh, Donovan Mitchell from the Utah Jazz. And like I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the reason this took so long is because Danny Ainge almost got greedy. Danny Ainge set a price tag out there that it seemed like no one was going to or no one wanted to match. When you take into consideration that he was able to pull off the heist of the century in getting four unprotected draft picks for Rudy Gobert. Something that, you know, the Minnesota Timberwolves front office should have their heads examined and made sure that there's a working brain in there. Rudy Gobert, good player, but not someone you're giving up that kind of price tag for. And Danny Ainge thought, oh, if I can get that for uh, Gobert, what could I get for Donovan Mitchell? But he finally had to swallow some pride in the last week and accept the deal from the Cavaliers in which, you know, you're getting a lot back. You're getting tradable assets in uh, the likes of young players such as Laurie Markinen, a rookie in uh, Ochi Ajibaji and Colin Sexton, who you've been hearing trade rumors about him for the last year and a half in Cleveland. And all of these guys are still relatively young. All you know, 25 years or younger. And Sexton... You just signed him to a four-year extension for you no know, workable money in today's day and age of uh, the NBA. And along with it, you got three unprotected first-round draft picks along with two pick swaps. But Cleveland comes out looking great here because they get, you know, by most people's estimations, a top 20 player in this league, one of the better offensive point guards that we have in the sport that is still very, very young and didn't have to give up any, you know, core pieces. Still have the likes of, you know, Karis LeVert and Jared Allen there. Still have uh, rookie of the year runner-up Evan Mobley. Still have uh, Darius Garland who broke out last year was a first-time NBA All-Star. And this is a team that they're on the rise. Maybe they're not ready to win a championship yet or come out of the East when you still have the Bucks and the Celtics, the top dogs there. You can never rule out either Miami or Philadelphia and we'll see what happens when it comes to the Brooklyn Nets. But this is a move as far as taking that next step for the Cavaliers. You know They could have rested on their laurels from last year of saying, oh, this is the first time without LeBron James that we made the uh, playoffs, that we were in the mix of things because you know they had a winning record last year. They were, had the eighth best record in the East. They just came up short and lost back-to-back play-in games to the Nets and the Hawks. But they're not, they don't want to, keep up with this, oh, continuously rebuilding. You can only rebuild for so long. At some point, you got to take a shot. You got to make that move that shows, hey, we're not just a fun, cute story. We're serious about this. We want to take that next um, um, step toward being a, a great team because even though, you know, as Joe Kim Noah once said, what's so great about Cleveland, Who's really going to go there? You get a guy like this who he's not on that LeBron, Durant, Giannis uh, kind of level. He's not a top 10 player. But you get an all-star, a perennial all-star, guy who's a top 20, 25 player in the sport there. Then that eventually could convince an even better player than him to get there and yet closer and closer to that dream of, of being a championship contender. Because, you know, so many of these teams, they want to skip steps. They they want to just jump from being a dump right up to being a championship team. No, it takes time. It takes um, time to build up to that. And sometimes you got to take, when you have that surprisingly fun season, like the Nets had two years ago, like the... The, the Knicks had the year after that, you got to be willing to make that next move, that next step. Now, the Nets did it in kind of selling their soul by letting D'Angelo Russell go and bringing in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. The Knicks, on the other hand, the following year did not make that move, did not take that next step. And that's why they're in the place that they are in now where they missed the playoffs last year and still have, you know, some bad contracts on the books like Evan Fournier, like the extension um, that they gave to Julius Randle, which at the time looked like a discount, now looks like a heaping pile of crap with the, the way he played and acted last year. But they did whether it's begrudgingly, whatever their reasons are, did make a a good move last week in locking up uh, R.J. Barrett to a uh, rookie extension, becoming the first player uh, to sign a multi-year extension after their rookie deal with the Knicks since Charlie Ward back in 99. And That's how long it's been. I was in the 5th grade in in 1999. But, no, R.J. Barrett, while he still has improvements to go in his game, still has has to be a guy that is a bit more ambidextrous and not just shoot from one side of the court. You've seen his scoring totals go up each year. You saw his consistency go up uh, as last season uh, was going on. And, Look at him. He's 22 years old. He's six foot six. is capable of playing either the 2 or the 3. After three years, that would have been too soon to give up on this guy. I thought that, you know, I understood why the Jazz wanted to get him in, in this deal. For them, he was the equivalent of what they were asking for from the Cavs in getting uh, Colin Sexton. But with the Knicks, this is a a young, homegrown guy that has gotten better and better. And, you know, his ceiling is probably to be a Donovan Mitchell type player. To be somewhere in that top 30 range of player in the NBA. Now, whether he gets to being there, it remains to be seen. But I did not... I would have been okay giving up the likes of uh, Emmanuel Quickly or Obi Toppin, draft picks. I, I, for the life of me, don't understand what this obsession is of their deadlock in wanting to hold on to Quentin Grimes considering he was in and out of the rotation last year. But to me, this was a good move for the Knicks. This was a good day, a good sign that... They're still building towards something and not just wanting to ship away a young player for the quick fix. Now, I would have traded some of those other young pieces that I mentioned to get Donovan Mitchell along with draft picks. Because they do have 11 draft picks over the next several years as far as their own and the seven that they've acquired over time um, to use in the right trade packages. But I would not have you know, just given up the entire form for uh, Donovan Mitchell because we've seen the Knicks in that place way too many times. That's why they're, they were in the position that they were in the Isaiah Thomas era and uh, the early part of uh, the Donnie Walsh era where they were essentially having to drag themselves out of the gutter. But at some point, if you're a Knicks fan, you know while you like what they've done here, re-signing Barrett, uh, bringing in Jalen Brunson, some of the young pieces that they still have as far as depth in this rotation, at some point they've got to make that next move. They've got to make that move that is taking that next step, and you know stop with all this nonsense about oh, getting Giannis here. Get that that player that's on the equivalent, the level of a Donovan Mitchell. Get him here first, then we can talk about making that next move that convinces that even better player to come here. Stop trying to just skip steps because, like I said, that is what's gotten you in the mess that you've been as a franchise for the last 20-plus years. And that, my friends, was keeping it sports with M3 for Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Hey, football's right around the corner, people. It's happy time. So, everyone, please enjoy the start of the NFL season. Be back next week to break it all down. Until then, stay safe. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you! Thank you for all the fun! Thank you! Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.